We're going to be in Psalm 139, uh, if you have not already turned there. And we're going to be looking at a psalm by David uh, that uh, on your list is a psalm of surrender, a prayer of surrender. And it certainly is that. Um, going back to last week, how many people were here last week? So a lot of you were here last week. Good. Um, the prayer from that uh, Mark talked about last week from Psalm chapter 51 basically had two different structural pieces to it, if you want to put it that way. The first thing was there was an acknowledgement of what? There was an acknowledgement of sin, right? David, as, as Mark went through, David had been given a litany of sins that he had committed against God. Uh, Nathan the prophet brought that to him. And as a result, David felt this great conviction, right? And so he needed to go to God and confess and repent of those. But he didn't just ask for confession. He didn't just have uh, a repentant heart. He had something else that was a part of that. He had an acknowledgement, and then there was some action, right? I mean, if you, if you go back to Psalm chapter 51 and you look at all the different things that David basically asked God in prayer to do, he asked him to purge him. He asked him to wash him. Um, he uh, asked to create in me a clean heart, right? So there was this acknowledgement by David over his sin. And then there was an action that he prayed to God. God, please, because of this sin, I need you to help me with this. I need you to... Um, to to bring into my life these characteristics and traits so that I can uh, be closer to you, so I can be in the right relationship with you. That was the basic structure of what the prayer was last week. The prayer here that David writes uh, in Psalm 139 is very much the same in the structure part. The first thing is there's an acknowledgement, right? As David goes through, he's not acknowledging something about himself. He's acknowledging something about God and some things about God. He is acknowledging traits and characteristics about God that we're going to look into and see these magnificent and wonderful traits that, that David brings out. But there's also some action that David prays about, right? And that action that we're ultimately going to get to is that surrendering that we're talking about when we talk about this being a prayer of surrender. As David acknowledges who God is and what God is, right? It's re that acknowledgement also requires a response. And so David is going to kind of give us some response as he um, 
uh, wraps up this prayer. So we get two very different kind of prayers in their content and in their topic, but very similar prayers in the way that they are structurally made, right? There's an acknowledgement of something and then there's an action. And both of those kinds of prayers are important, right? For us as believers, for us as Christians, it's very important for us to recognize our sin, to recognize our failures, and to go before our holy God and say, God, I have sinned against you. God, I have these issues. And so, God, please make me pure. Please clean my heart. That's a very important prayer, right? It's also an important prayer just to spend some time praising God for who He is, right? The prayer is, is part of worship. And so going down and just saying, God, thank you for being who you are. And thank you for what you have done. And that's exactly what, what uh, David is going to do here. But even in that, even in that acknowledgement, there's a response. There's a call to action. And uh, David acknowledging God brings this out. So um, two very different prayers that we're going to see here, but very, very similar in their structure. So let's get to there's There's really um, four different uh, uh, sections here that we kind of want to get to. Well, actually, I guess you could say five. Um, here in, in Psalm 139, first thing that we want to note is that, of course, this is a psalm of David. How do we know this? Because it says it right here that it's a psalm of David, which is a very good hint. Um, to the choir master. Now, there is some thought that the choir master would be God himself. Of course, and that makes perfect sense that it would be God is the choir master. He's the everything master. Um, but there are some thoughts that it could have also been some actual worship leaders, if you want to put it that way, or choir masters um, that David would have known. Regardless, this actually is meant to kind of be a song. Um, uh, Psalms, of course, a lot of them are meant to be songs. And if you want to find a song about this, there is actually a song by a group called Shane and Shane. Anybody ever heard of Shane and Shane? Right? They actually have a song uh, uh, called, oh, what's it called? Well, wouldn't you know it? My brain just went dead. Uh, but it, there is a song, and it's, a, it's about Psalm 139, and it actually uses directly uh, from the Bible here. So it is from David to the choir master, and it is actually meant to be sung as well as being a prayer. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 6. And uh, we'll start, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is high. I cannot attain it. So David here is speaking about God's omniscience, right? God knowing everything. And he starts off by the, the prayer by saying, oh, Lord, right? So he is, this is important, just those first two words, because it's important to know that he is referring to Yahweh, right? The God of Israel. He is actually speaking to God. And this is, it's, it's really neat and really cool that as believers of God, we have a God that we can actually speak to and that hears us. Most, and at that time, it was certainly the case. But even today, pagans deal with, some of them believe, hostile gods. Right? And that was certainly the case during that time. Was the pagans, you know, maybe they don't even care. That's why there were so many of them. But they, they were concerned that gods, the gods that um, they believed in, the gods they worshipped, were indifferent to them. But much less be able to speak to them and pray to them and have them listen and have that relationship. So just the, the fact that he's able to start with, oh, Lord. Um, is an amazing thing that we see. But this is where we start to see God's omniscience. He says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know when I sit down and when I rise up is basically just a phrase to say, you know everything about me. You know every single thing about me. From the smallest little thing, I mean, think about, you all walked into this room and you all sat down. God knows, God knew that you were doing that. Eight billion people in the world, all the things that are going on in this world, and God knew that you were going to come into this room and sit down. That's how well He knows you. And He knows when you're going to rise up. In a little while, we're all going to stand God's going to be aware of it, right? What a, what a thing to know that God knows, uh, knows us all that intimately. And this, this is an important thing to, to note here. Um, as David is, is talking here, the way that he's personalizing this, God knows everything, but what's really cool, what's really neat it's God knows everything about me. God knows everything about you. That's an amazing thing to think about. And good and bad, He knows everything about me. And He still loves me in spite of all the bad because there's way more bad than there is good. Right? But to think that God knows me everything about me. What a wonderful thing to know and what a wonderful thing to praise Him for. He knows my thoughts. Well, that can make get a little bit scary. God knows your thoughts. But He, he knows your thoughts. Um, he knows what's going to be said before you even say it. He knows everything that you're thinking about. Now, let me say this, and this is where you know, I'm going to maybe beat you up a little bit. Knowing 
that He knows everything that's going to come out of your mouth should cause you to have pause about what is going to come out of your mouth. If you're a believer, if you're a disciple of God and you're given to profanity, if you're given to inappropriate speaking, then you should be doing a heart check on that. Because God knows every single word that's going to come out of your mouth. And in our glorifying of Him, which is what we're supposed to be doing, things that come out of our mouth that don't glorify Him are basically useless and worthless and we don't need to have it. Now, we're all sinners. We're all going to be guilty of things. But it's the, the mindset of knowing, hey, God knows what I'm going to say. I better watch what I'm going to say. I better be aware that God knows this. It's wonderful that He knows it, but it's also a warning to us. Be careful what you say. Right? If, if you have a propensity to use dirty words, you need to have a little time with God in prayer <laughs> about that. Because God knows. Then David says, You hem me in behind and before. This is in verse 5. And you lay your hand upon me. This speaks to not only does God know everything about me, which he does, but because he knows everything about me, he is protecting me. And sometimes he's protecting me from me. <laughs> right? But this idea of you hem me in behind and before is the idea of like a hedge, right, at that time, but in order to protect like crops or, or animals or different things, they would hedge something around so that um, uh, it would be protected. Right? And it's good to know that we have that hedge before us because if anything's going to happen to us, it's going to have to go through God first, right? As we saw with Job, you know, when, when Satan wanted to, to attack Job, he's, you got to go through me first, and God allowed it. And sometimes God does allow tests and trials and tribulation to come into our lives. But He knows us so well, so well He protects us, right? And when He says, you lay your hand upon me, right? So as I'm going through life, there are a lot of things that might make Nathan go start to veer one way or another, right? But thankfully, God knows me well enough to know how to keep me going on the straight and narrow. He's got His hand on me, right? That's a great thing to know. God is there in those situations. And David wraps up this with really what's kind of a really humble thing for him to say. And, and to acknowledge. And it's an important acknowledgement for us as well. It says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, I think sometimes our finite minds in trying to understand God try to put the infinite into our finite mind, into our finite world, to try to figure out and understand God. When David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is high. I cannot attain it. Right? We can't have the knowledge that God has. That's a good thing. Because if we could get to that point, then there is no God. Right? Having the God be the God of all-knowing and us not having that same understanding is okay. It's a wonderful thing, David said, to understand that God does know everything. Even though I don't, He does and He's still in charge. So David starts with the acknowledgement of God knowing everything and everything about Him. But then he goes on to verse, verses 7 through 12 to know that God is everywhere. Starting in verse 7, we'll read verse 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So, God knows everything about me, and there is nowhere I can go that He's not there also. Now, I don't believe, as David starts here, where shall I go from your spirits, from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence, that David is looking for an escape route. Right? That's not the, what he's trying to do here. Right? Remember, this is a, uh, a prayer of praise that David has. Um, and we see that, I think, down in verse 10, and we'll, we'll get to that. But David's not looking for a way out. He's not looking for a way to flee from God. He's saying, There's, God, you're everywhere. You're, you're everywhere. And that's an amazing thing to know. Now, let's make it clear, because there are a lot of... Uh, there are some false teachers, let's just call it what it is out there, that says that God is everywhere and is in everything. Right? That God is in the trees and God is in the, the flowers and God is... The, no, God is separate from His creation. Right? There, God is... It, it's, it's separate from that. But He is everywhere. Right? So David's not looking to get away from God, because how can he? <laughs> how can he? He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And that word Sheol, some of your translations may say hell. Um, this, is not, this is not maybe necessarily referring to hell itself, but it is referring to the grave or the afterlife was probably the word that was, uh, would have been more commonly known there. Either way, if you think of heaven as being the highest place that you can go, and Sheol or hell being the lowest place that you can go, 
God is there. Then verses, uh, verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, so that is actually referring to kind of sunrise, right? Or, or light. The wings of the morning would be what's happening to the east. Okay? And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. At that time, the uttermost parts of the sea, the, the sea would have been the Mediterranean, which would have been west of them, right? So what David really is describing here is like from north to south and east to west and everywhere in between, no matter where it is, you're there. God, you are everywhere. So with that, David then says in verse 10, and this is why I don't think that he's looking at this as an escaper. He says, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. I'm thankful that anywhere and everywhere I go, and anywhere and everywhere you go, God is there to lead you. No matter the circumstances, no matter the situation. And what I really, really think is kind of cool about this is he's there to hold you. Right? That's a pretty comforting thing. You know, the idea that someone knows everything about you and can see you at all times because they're everywhere, right, could be a little scary. Right? If I were to, to be walking around just out in the world, and there was someone following me with a camera, right? Every move that I make and following me around, right? And we, of course, we know, you know, the old phrase, big brother is watching and, you know, all the, the stuff like that. That might be a little uncomfortable, right? That might be a little strange. But with God, that's not what is intended here. It's not intended to be, David saying, this doesn't make me uncomfortable, that God is watching everything, that God knows everything about me. He said, I'm, I'm glad that God knows everything about me, and I'm glad that He's everywhere. Because wherever I go, He's there to lead me. He's there to hold me, to keep me, to protect me. Right? That's a wonderful thing to know as a believer, as a Christian, that God is Everywhere, There's no place I can go that he's not there. Then verse 11 and 12, David says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So again, he's just reiterating this idea. No matter where I go, even if I try to hide, if I were to be in dark, your light is going to overcome that darkness. Right? That's a wonderful thing to, to, to know as well. So God is, knows everything, and God is everywhere. And as I said with the omniscience part, God knows everything about me. The really cool thing is God is everywhere with me. God is everywhere with you. 
that's kind of amazing to think about, right? <laughs> I mean, just to try to grasp that is a, is a pretty amazing thing. So now we get to, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, the timing <laughs> that, uh, that God has and what's going on in our world right now. And for us to be here, Psalm 139, reading verses 13 through 16. So if you want to know any answers to the questions about abortion that are going on in our country, and the issues, and where we should stand on it, it's very simple right here in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 16 through 16. As David is praising God about His creation. Now it starts with the word for, right, in verse 13. So he's kind of taking this back to verses 11 and 12, where he's talking about darkness, right? Because David is going to, it's almost like David is thinking, darkness, oh, a place that would have been dark would have been in his mother's womb, right? So, he is, he's recognizing that, he's kind of making that connection, at the same time kind of coming to a realization, it's almost as like, oh, dark. You know what? It was dark in my mother's womb, and you even knew me back then. You even knew me then. He, said, he says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Who is the creator of the child? God. God is the one creating that child. David will go on to say, before the mother even knows, before anyone else even knows what is going on, God is the one creating you formed my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. So to start with, when, it, when we talk about this issue with abortion, and of course it's a major issue in our world today, and we're not to shirk it, right? We're to take a stand as Christians about it. So to start with, it's made very clear that while the father and the mother played their part, God is the one that is creating that child. That is God's child. That is not the father's. That is not the mother's. That is God's child. So that's the first thing to note. He says, starting in verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Have you ever thought, have you ever just kind of, you know, as, as I was studying this, I read a lot of stats and a lot of different things about uh, the human body, right? And I'll just uh, go over a few things here. Now, the, the source for this is kind of interesting source. Because the source is a man named Carl Sagan. Anybody know who Carl Sagan is? Famed evolutionist, scientist, yeah, right? And he talks about the amazing attributes and the amazing characteristics of the human body. 
and then somehow comes to the conclusion that it was by chance. I mean, I don't know how logically and rationally someone could look at some of this stuff and say, yeah, that just happened. Right? God shows himself in the marvelous work of the human body. Right? Of course, we're created in, in his own image. But just a few things that I found that were, um, that were pretty cool, just to kind of give us an idea of what the, the, how great and how marvelous the creation of the human body is. Every second, more than 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain. Every second that happens. Um, that information comes to your brain through the miracle of the eye, which has 100 million receptor cells, rods and cones in each eye. Um, here's, here's one that's, uh, that I thought was pretty interesting. One square inch of your skin has about 625 sweat glands. That's why you sweat so much when you're down here in Florida and it's humid in the morning in August and you step outside. You've got thousands and thousands of sweat glands to produce that water. Uh, 19 feet of blood vessels, 19,000 century cells, and all of that working in coordination with your brain to keep your body temperature at a steady rate. Right, most the most common one is what 98.6. Some of us are, are a little bit different than that. Um, your stomach, 35 million glands, which secrete the right amounts of juices to allow your body to to digest food and convert it into stored energy for your muscles. It's pretty amazing, huh? Um, 200 bones, each perfectly situated with over 500 muscles and ligaments and tendons that allow those bones and muscles to work exactly the way that they're supposed to work so that you can function in the way that you need to function. Right? The thumbs are right where they need to be and have the perfect amount of joints in them. Right? Your head your shoulders, your knees, everything about you perfectly situated so that your body will function properly. Um, your heart, this I thought was pretty interesting. I didn't ever really uh, think about this. Your heart beats over 100,000 times a day. <clears throat> over 100,000 times a day, that heart has to be just right, right? Otherwise, something bad happens. And all the things that go into the, the brain coordinating with the heart and with the blood and with the blood vessels and the veins taking the blood, all the things that have to happen for that to occur, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank God for that. So David recognizes this and he's praising God for it. 
And then going into verse 15, he says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Again, God knew from the very beginning. Of course, he knew from the beginning of time that there would be a David and who David would be and what he would do. But God knew David before anybody else did. Right? My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Right? When a, when a woman becomes pregnant, and yes, only women can become pregnant. We live in a sad world sometimes, don't we? Some of the stuff that's out there. Well, when a woman becomes pregnant, does she instantly know? No. Nope. God does. God instantly knows. He's already set it up to happen that way. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. I was, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven. Boy, that's, that's a great description there of being, of the body being made, of the person, of the child being made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in verse 16. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So not only is David acknowledging here that God knows his past completely up and, you know, from the very, very, very beginning of conception, God knew David, but his whole future, God has already planned. That child that ends up getting aborted had a future that God had planned for him that man has taken from him. That's a sad thing. God has already established a plan for everyone. There's a future there for everyone. And we as a society for way too long have allowed people to take that. And I thank God that there are men and women who have taken a stand to end this. And as Christians, as believers, it can be a little scary when you look on TV and you see the rage, the rage that people have about not being able to kill babies anymore. But you take the stand with those supreme... And by the way, speaking of prayer, you should be praying for those those people that are sitting on that Supreme Court that look like they're going to overturn this because they're going, they're going to be attacked on every side. They probably already are. But where should we stand with them and with God and we should not be afraid to do so? We are God's creatures. He's the one that created us. He's the one. And Every time that unborn child is taken, that's God's child that's been taken. So, you know, I don't want to sound too preachy up here, but it's a topic of the day. And, uh, you know, I said God has this timing, and it's right here for us to, so we're going to talk about it, and we're going to tell the truth about it. And that's the way that, that it should be. So, um, so David has 
spent the, this first part, these first 16 verses, acknowledging who God is. God, you know everything about me. God, you are everywhere with me. God, you created me. You've known me from the very beginning. You're going to know me to the very end. You created me. So, there comes a response to that. And the response really kind of starts in, in verse 17. We'll, read, we'll just look at verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. So, so David is, is, this is amazing that, you're, that you even think about me. And think, think about that for a second. Eight billion people in this world, and God thinks about you. But not only is God thinking about you, he's, David says, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. It's not like God just thinks about you every once in a while. Right? It's not like he's just going along and, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that Russell guy. Yeah, oh, yeah, I wonder what he's up to. <laughs> Better check on him. No, he's always thinking about you. His thoughts are more than that. what uh, David says here. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. But he says, if I could count them. He's not saying I can. He said, if I could, they would be more than the sand. Of course, who wants to go out and be the first one to try to start to count the sand in this world? <laughs> right? God thinks about you all the time. All the time. That's how much He loves you. There's never a time that He's not thinking about you. And David says, I awake and I am still with you. Now this might be talking about, I go to sleep, I wake, and you're still there. Because obviously when we go to sleep, most of us were kind of out of our conscious state, right? We wake up and God is still there. Could also mean, when I awake after death, you will be there. And either way, however, whichever way it is, God is always going to be there. From beginning to very end. He's there. Then we see a, a, kind of a, the, the, this prayer take a little bit of a turn here, starting in verse 19, as we see uh, more of the response from David. Starting in verse 19 through verse 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is an interesting part of this prayer. Right? Some of you might be sitting there thinking, I've been working on trying to love my enemies. <laughs> And now I'm being told to hate? There seems to be something off there. But there's not. It's very, very clear in the Bible 
in many places. Psalm 97, 10. Amos 5, 14 and 15. Um, there's a couple more here. Uh, Romans 12, 9. Just a few of the places where it talks about us hating sin. All right? Let me ask you a question. Does God hate sin? Yes, he does. Should we, as followers of Christ, as believers, should we hate sin? Absolutely. That's what it says right here. Do we hate the person that might be the sinner? No. All right? You say, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, you kind of do it every day with yourself, don't you? All right? You should, if God loves you, you should have some love for yourself. But you should also be hating your sin. All right? So David's prayer here is, God, I'm on your team. Right? So if you hate the sin, then I'm going to hate it too. I think that we are guilty sometimes as believers and as followers of Christ of being too loving. Right? We kind of have this idea, well, you know, and you get this a lot out of, um, well, I don't want to ever question someone's Christianity, but you get this a lot out of what you might call liberal Christians. Well, God is a God of love. Right? And God is a God of peace. God is a God of judgment as well. And God hates sin. And we are too as well. David says here, because of who you are, God, because you are all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere, and I want to be on your team, right? I want you to slay the wicked, not because of what they're doing to me, right? He says, in 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Right? It's not that David's like, they're doing something to me. It's because they're against you. And if they're your enemy, or if they're enemies of you, then I'm enemies with them. I'm on God's side here. Might seem to be a little harsh, maybe, to to think about. But you can separate hating the sin and hating those that are enemy against God and still having love for them. Right? God does that himself, right? Does God love everyone? Yeah. He still hates sin. Right? So, if... In the process of being sanctified, in the process of becoming more like God, that should be part of that process. We love people. We want, them, we want to reach people. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to be saved if they're not. If they are saved and they're somehow out of fellowship with God, we want to help to lead them back. Right? That we should have a loving heart. No doubt about that. No question. But we also do have the responsibility to hate sin. We're on God's team 
If you are like, ah, sin, nah, you know, I'm more concerned about that person and loving that person, then you're not really in the right place with God. You know, sometimes we just have to be honest about things. And sometimes we just have to say the truth. You know, getting back to what we're talking about abortion. If you don't hate the fact that there's abortion, then there's a problem. Right? If you don't hate the fact that people are questioning what a woman is or what a man is, Right? If you don't see that sin in the world and hate it, then there's a problem. It doesn't mean that we don't love those people. It just means that we recognize who God is and what He thinks about it, and we're more concerned about what He thinks about it. But then David ends this prayer, kind of turns back a little bit after uh, this one part to a place where he, he has some requests from God, I guess you can put it this way. As he ends his prayer, as he is acknowledging everything about God, he wants to finish up with some requests from God. Right? He wants God to do some work in him. So the first thing that he says is, search me. Search me, O God. Now, it's interesting that the first verse of this chapter, the first verse of this prayer says, you have searched me. Right? David here is saying, search me. Again, it's like, God, I want you to continue. You know me, but continue to search me. And continue to know my heart. It says, try me and know my thoughts. Some of your um, translations may have know my anxieties or know my fears. Right? And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is saying, because of all these things, God, because of who you are, I want you to continue to search me and know me. Because I want to continue to form my relationship with you. I want to, you know, David was described as a man after God's own heart. In spite of everything that he did bad that led to Psalm 51. <laughs> right? He's saying, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And again, uh, some of your translations may have anxieties or worries. Now, there is a lot to be anxious about. I've dealt with uh, some anxiety in my life a few years ago. I had some terrible anxiety attacks. I have no idea why or where they started. If you've ever had them, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you don't want to have them. They can be pretty awful. But that anxiety comes from a place of kind of worry. And it's really worry about stuff that hasn't really even happened yet. Right? So David's like, God, search in me. Find the things that I might be worried about. Right? Because we get worried about things as Christians and trying to walk the Christian life. 
How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you get worried about what others are going to think about you as a Christian and your beliefs? Especially in this day and age when, let's face it, being a Christian is kind of counterculture. Right? There was a time where counterculture meant something completely different in this country. But right now, being a Christian is being the one that's counterculture. You're the one that's kind of looked at a little different. Well, guess what? You are a little different. This is not your home. You're just a, an ambassador. You're just passing through. So you are a little different. Praise God for that, right? But it can be troublesome. It can be worrisome to think about what someone else might think about us. And having those worries and those thoughts could lead us to inaction. Which is a sad thing to think that there would be an opportunity for us to spread the gospel, to reach out to someone, but we don't do it because we're worried about what may happen. Now, I was thinking back to uh, Judges. We've been, we recently looked at that in our life groups and how after Joshua passed, the book of Judges tells us there was a generation that rose up that didn't know God, right? And it was the responsibility of the leaders of Israel to tell those people about God, to tell their children. They had been instructed to do so in Deuteronomy, Right? They had been told, you are to make sure that your children and their children and the, the stuff that God has done for you from the time of coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, bringing you into the promised land, all the things that have been done, your children are to know and they're to know from you. You're to tell them. Right? Apparently they didn't get told. And what happened to them? They came up, they didn't know God, and they got plundered and they went through distress and uh, the, the misery that they, that they went through to the point where God at times, of course, if you know the book of Judges, it's a, it's a cyclical and, and spiral of really bad things happening to the people because they didn't know God, they didn't follow God, but God would show mercy and would show grace and would bring a judge along to get them out of a situation that they were in and there would be a time, a short time where everything would be okay and then it would get worse. And it all started because a generation was brought up that didn't know God. There's a lot of people in this world that don't know God. Whose responsibility is it to tell them? It's us. It's the people in this church. It's people in this communi community that are believers. They need to know. But if we're worried and we're anxious about those sorts of things, then what we tell them? So David is saying, search me, know me, know what my worries. See if there be any grievous way in me. David's like, God, there might be sin I don't even know about in my life. There might be some things that I'm not even, I'm not even sure that 
you know, what I might do. We've already seen that I pretty much do everything. I want you to search and see if there's any grievous way in me so that you can lead me in the everlasting. Now, this, David, is, as he's wrapping this up, there is this thought that, you know, you can lead me in the everlasting, so meaning that you can lead me to my eternity in heaven. But I also thought about this. Whose ways are everlasting? God's ways. So as I look at this, it says, lead me in the way everlasting. I think that one thing that David is referring to as well is, I want to follow your ways, God. I want to be more like you. David is not praying here to be a better version of David. All right? He's praying to be more like God. That's what David's desire is. All right? That should be our desire. Not to be a better version of me, because a better version of me is still really, really bad. <laughs> There's still a lot bad there. But my desire, your desire, and in your prayer life, as you acknowledge who God is and how wonderful He is and everything that He knows and everywhere that He is, right? our, our prayer should be because of that. God, I want to be more like You. Bring me closer to You. Sanctify me. As uh, David wrote previously, purify me. Cleanse my heart. That's what David, I believe, is saying here when he says, lead me in the way everlasting. God, make me more like you. Here's a model of prayer, an acknowledgement of who God is, how great God is, and then an action that David is asking from God. Challenge to us, that same prayer. Every day, a prayer to praise God, and a prayer to say, God, make me more like you. So that I can tell others about the wonder of you. Because right? at the end of the day, that's the important thing. It's not that we get this, we get to hold it and keep it to ourselves. It's that we get it and we have the opportunity to share it. <laughs>